a desperate search for the Titan submersible last week ended in tragic news. On Thursday, as you know, they had found uh, broken pieces of the sub scattered not too far from the wreckage of the Titanic. It's a little disturbing during the search that a participant in a prior dive on that same vehicle had said that his sense at the time is that there were inadequate safety precautions. Turned out okay for him on his excursion, but he he had real concerns. And then yesterday, Canadian authorities announced that they were considering evidence that might lead to a criminal investigation. I haven't elaborated on that yet, but uh, is it possible that the uh, owners of that company had uh, put human lives at risk for the sake of their own profits? Is it possible? <laughs> we, we don't doubt that it's possible. Uh, neither do we know what actually took place. We'll see how that develops. But it seems ironic that when the Titanic itself sank over uh, 100 years ago, I think actually over 110 years ago, that another story of misplaced values had also taken place on the surface of those very same waters. On that a fateful night when rescue ships finally arrived and were able to pick up those that were in, uh, in the lifeboats, which there weren't enough lifeboats. But one thing that disturbed the rescuers is that some of those boats were only half full. And yet they knew that the waters that evening were scattered with people that were crying out for help. And so they asked those in those lifeboats, why didn't you pick up more people? And the response came back that they were concerned that there would be so many that their own boat might sink. Those two events together, and again, we don't know really what's behind uh, the, the story of this past week, but those two events together highlights an aspect of our fallen human nature. Sinful human nature is eager to pursue its own goals even at the expense of others. Some perhaps have that better in control. Some are experiencing God's grace in that regard. But there aren't any of us that can deny that, yeah, in my perspective, I'm the most important person I know. And, and I'm, I'm pretty eager to take care of my own things. Uh, make sure that not only do I not get shortchanged, 
but that I got all the advantages that I can arrange. Furthermore, the role of other people from that human perspective is that they are either supposed to help me get what I want, or they're at least supposed to get out of the way. That's a pretty bleak picture of the circumstances and the world of the world in which we live. But here's the positive aspect. Jesus came to change that perspective. He came to change how we think, and then resulting from that to change how we live. Based on the presentation of the gospel that we considered in the first half of the book of Romans, our, cha- our portion today, Romans 13, 8 through 14, exhorts God's people to participate more fully in that crucial transformation of heart and mind and life. The very transformation that prompted Christ to come in the first place. Here's the message from this passage today. Because Christ has redeemed your soul, nothing less than that. Your daily life must reflect the Lord. Reflect the Lord, we'll see, in two ways. First, to reflect the love of the Lord. God's love for other people. He expects you and all his people, he expects us all to participate in that very same way of thinking. Other people are important. As important as I think I am. That's a high standard. The second way your life must reflect the Lord is to reflect the light of the Lord, the truth of God's word, changing lives, changing your life, confronting the darkness of the world around us and the darkness of every human heart. That's what Christ can do. So let's look at the first few verses. Your daily life must reflect the love of the Lord in verses 8 through 10. This is actually resuming an emphasis we saw back in chapter 12, where love for others is, uh, we've already seen an exhortation about that and uh, that chapter. But here, the emphasis is that love obeys all that God commands. And there are a lot of commands in Scripture. Uh, Jewish people count 613 commands uh, just in the Old Testament, which is, of course, all they're concerned about. But these verses tell us that love for God and then love for other people will obey all that God commands. The focus here is on those particular commands that 
direct our relationship with other people. Human relationships. Love is the key factor there. So verse 8 says, and this is connecting with the uh, previous verse where we were told to pay our taxes. Verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything. Some have taken that as a prohibition of taking a loan for any purpose. There certainly are fewer legitimate reasons to take a loan than many people think. But this is not a, 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 an explicit prohibition of the whole concept of, of uh, taking a loan and paying somebody back uh, over time, over uh, a reasonable period of time. Uh, in, in that sense, if you're making the payments properly and on time, then you don't owe that person anything. What you owe them is what he's expecting every month. But the real point here is that there is an exception to that. There is something you are never going to be able to fulfill, but you must strive to do it day after day after day. He expresses that exception in the rest of the verse, except to love each other. That is a continual obligation. There are no days off from that. And it's an obligation that you are never going to be able to complete. It's always continual. And that's God's plan. It's a bill that is always due. So pay your obligation to love others. And in so doing, you will be reflecting the love of the Lord. Pay that obligation. Uh, uh, He says, to each other. There's a one another concept here. And whenever we see that, an exhortation to do something to one another we realize that he's, he's really focusing particularly on other believers. And as we've seen uh, earlier in uh, chapters 12 and uh, 13 in particular, and we'll continue to see this in 14 and 15 and even 16, Paul's focus here is primarily on relationships within a local church family. How you connect with other people. But there's also an indication in this passage that Paul is thinking beyond the walls of uh, where, where believers meet together. That this also extends beyond just a church family. Pay your obligation to everyone. First, to those among God's people but then also to those who are nearby. We're going to see the word neighbor show up in this passage. A neighbor is not necessarily even limited to the people that live next door to you. A neighbor is anybody who is nearby. You know, starting from right here, 
But anybody you are nearby when you leave this service, anyone you are nearby where you work, where you go to school, where you have other activities, the responsibility to reflect the love of Christ continues in all those places. Pay your obligation to love. Verse 9 goes on to say, show your obedience to Christ. This is a matter of obedience. As he says, the one who loves, in verse 8, has fulfilled the law, has brought it to, his, to its completion. That's, that's an ambition we are looking ahead to. Someday I'm going to fulfill this, and that day will coincide exactly when Uh, with the day that Christ returns. That's when we will have satisfied our obligation. But verse 9 expands on the law aspect of this as it explains for the commandments. And now he just gives a sample. These all come from the second half of the original Ten Commandments. First half focus more on relationship With God, the second half, roughly, more on relationships with people. And it doesn't even name them all, indicating to us that it's a sample. Here's what the sample uh, relates. He says, "For for the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. As we've just broken the surface here. If there are a total of 613, this is just barely a handful. God expects a lot more and has given us a lot more detail about what we have to do in relation to people. But this sample is enough to make the point, as verse 9 continues, and any other commandment, it's, they're all summed up In this one word, this statement, this concise combination, look how simple this is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if he just stopped with the word neighbor, love your neighbor. Okay, I can generate a little bit of love there. That satisfies me. But it doesn't satisfy God until your love for your neighbor comes right up to the high standard of your love for yourself. And it won't do to try to deny that there's a whole lot of love there. We take excellent care of ourselves. We are really proficient at discerning what we need and discerning what we want, and going all out to try to achieve those. We aren't so good about discerning the difference between needs and wants. We would like to consider them all in the first category, but we know that's not true. We all strive diligently to meet those needs. There's what God expects toward others. Discern needs 
That's what this word translated love describes. A decision to discern the needs around you and to do something about it. Not casually, but as diligently as you strive to meet your own needs. Love will obey all that God commands. And if it seems too uh, overwhelming that, oh, there are so many commands, then all right, take the simpler route and just commit yourself to loving other people. That will do just fine. You see, love obeys all God commands. Verse 10 says the very same thing from exactly the opposite angle. Love avoids all that God forbids. You see, even the Ten Commandments are basically prohibitions. Uh, Don't steal. Why does God prohibit stealing? Because of the negative impact that would have on the person you're stealing from. Uh, All of these impact somebody else. Don't do that. And again, well, that's a lot of them are in the negative uh, uh, category. Uh, I don't like being so negative. All right, then be positive about it and just make the decision. I am going to avoid everything God fulfills. I am going to love that person instead of deprive him of something. So you restrain what is sinful, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. You're safe if you are guided by genuine love. The last part of verse 10, besides restraining what is sinful, love will provide what is helpful. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love discerns a need and strives to meet that need. There's God's plan. A frail elderly woman discerned an important difference between her two daughters. Here's how she explained it privately to a close friend. She said, my daughters are both believers, and they take turns each week helping me clean my house, uh, doing the things that I can't do. Jean leaves everything spotless, but she also leaves me feeling like I am a terrible burden to her. The next week when Mary comes, Everything still ends up clean. But Mary makes me feel that she has loved the opportunity to help me. Both are doing the same work. That's a reminder that every aspect of ministry, think right now of the ones you're already involved in. Every aspect of ministry we have the opportunity of performing in one of two ways. You can do it for yourself, 
and possibly what a claim, what appreciation that might bring to you. Or you can do it for the other person. So far, these verses are themselves a, a call to ask the Lord to infuse whatever you're doing already, whatever acts of ministry, whatever you are participating in, actually involved in the lives of others, whether that's uh, as, a, as a group all doing something together or whether it's just you individually do some things that are helping someone else. Ask the Lord to infuse that opportunity with genuine love in your heart. God, help me to do it for the right reason. Help me to do it in the right manner. You know, somehow or other, people can tell. You really love that person or not? Might also ask the Lord to help you see the needs of others more clearly. To be alert. There might be some things nearby, some people nearby, and you've been overlooking the reality that, hey, there's some, something there I can do to help. Ask the Lord to open your eyes. And then when you see, ask him to open your heart. God, I need your grace to love that person enough to actually do something about it. That's going to take God's help. Love, though, is not the only aspect of Christ's character that demands attention. Verses 11 to 14, this is marked in our text as a, as a new paragraph, new topic. But there's a close connection here in that it's just another way of reflecting the Lord. In these verses, it's your daily life that must reflect the light of the Lord. Uh, verse 11, besides this... Uh, Besides what he's just said, that's the link here that's connecting these. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The time for what is near? Well, it becomes clear he's talking about the return of Christ. What is near is the end of these opportunities. We're still going to be useful to the Lord. There's still going to be things, important things, even more important things for us to do in the kingdom of God that is yet to come. Uh, get, get rid of all these ideas of floating on a cloud and relaxing and sipping whatever uh, is there. Uh, there's, no, there's no floating on clouds. Okay. Uh, there's work to be done. That's how God designed us. That's not, work is not an aspect of the fall. Work is part of the original creation mandate that God gave to people. So we're going to be working then, 
Christ's coming doesn't end that, but it ends this opportunity. You only have so much time left. Well, how much time? Paul says, you know the time. Well, we don't know the time, in fact. We don't know how short it is. That's the point. The coming of Christ, here's the word we use to describe it. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Christ could come before our service ends. It could, he could come before you take your next breath. Now, at the same time, he might not come till later this year. It might not be for a few more years. It's an amazing thing that the doctrine of the imminence of the coming of Christ achieves. You can never relax. You can never say, oh, I know we got more time available, because we don't know. There's something inherent about the uncertainty of the time that is in itself a call for vigilance. There's an urgency that comes from the return of Christ. And so verse 11 is a call that uh, uh, moral lethargy in the hearts of God's people has already claimed way too much time. It has wasted time. A moral lethargy that says, oh, I can do that later. I can, I can work on that sinful habit in my life another time. You don't know that you've got another time coming. The call here to awake. This is the opportune moment. Now is the time to wake up, reject conformity to sinful, uh, this sinful age in which we live. Salvation here, when he says our salvation is nearer to us now. Wait a minute, I thought salvation was in the past. I've already asked Christ to save my soul. Well, that's one aspect of salvation Paul has in mind here, the last aspect. The culmination, that salvation, whenever it's going to come, the return of Christ, that salvation is clearly nearer now than it used to be. You're closer now to running out of time than you've ever been in your life. We all would have to acknowledge that. The time right now, is the time to wake up from the moral lethargy that just sort of fits in with the culture around us. Verse 12 expands on that. The night has far gone. The night here represents the current age. When did the current age begin? It began with the fall in the Garden of Eden. It's been a long age where darkness has prevailed in this world. But the night is far gone. 
from the standpoint of how much time has already gone by, the indication here is don't expect the, that same age to continue that much longer. The night is far gone. The day, the day of the light of the, of the Lord and his return, that day is near at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 12 is saying that sinful indulgence has kept too much hold, too much hold on the lives of God's people. Not to mention those unsaved people in the world who are still given to it wholly. So I've made some progress, you know, over the years. Well, praise the Lord for that. The point here is there's a lot more room to grow. Yearn for more. More victory. More change. More Christ-likeness. It's a call to spring into action. Exchange evil activity. the, The things of this world for doing what is right in God's eyes. The return of Christ demands urgency. And now verses 13 and 14, the return of Christ also demands purity. With this call in verse 13, let us walk. Walk is always our daily life, your ordinary behavior, how you live in this world. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. You know, in that sense, the daytime hasn't come yet. In that sense, we're still in the night, but you know what the daytime will require. You know the kind of behavior that will characterize your life once Christ arrives. And the full change that's going to make. Strive to live that way now. Strive to live now as if it's already that future kingdom. Because God's plan is that now while the darkness is still filling this world, his plan is that you as his child will reflect the light of the Lord. The light that the people of this world are going to see vividly when he comes back, they ought to be seeing it vividly now. Now in the lives of his people. Walk properly then, as in the daytime. And how he gets specific in verse 13 about what has to change, and some of these are pretty disturbing. Does he really need to urge God's people to get rid of some of these things? He says, not in orgies and drunkenness. Well, those are things that no child of God is going to participate in openly, will they? But does it go on among God's people? 
apparently that's been a problem. It's a problem Paul has said all these centuries. It's time to stop. Not in orgies and drunkenness. He goes on to name two aspects of sexual sin that also take place in private. Nobody does this, uh, no, no believer does this openly, but he's got to say it because God's people can be guilty of this as well, not in sexual immorality. That's a very broad term. You can't say, oh, I don't participate in sexual immorality because I never touch somebody else. Christ has made it clear it can take place in your mind. It can take place in your heart. And that is no more acceptable. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Well, those are two sets that, whoo, uh, those are pretty big. Those would seem to be pretty obvious. But now he goes to the other end of the spectrum and he picks two things that we would say are kind of tolerable. Yeah, these things happen. You know, nobody's perfect. Yes, I do uh, and get involved in quarreling with people. Yeah, there's some jealousy. Paul says that's not daytime walking. That's not reflecting the light of the Lord. Even in those categories, Christ is expecting change. What is quarreling? Quarreling is, a, is so much as to admit, I'm not getting everything I deserve out of this arrangement. I think I need some more. And the other person has exactly the opposite perspective. Jealousy. Paul could go on and on. Once again, he's satisfied just to get our minds thinking in the kind of things that happen, even among God's people. Just a a little heads up here. Uh, You you might want to work on that last set uh, in the coming days. Uh, We we won't be in, in Romans next week. That's uh, the, the Sunday that we will have uh, uh, the Lord's table together. Uh, so in two more weeks, but here's the heads up. He's going to have more to say about this quarreling and jealousy. So you can wait for two more weeks uh, if you want to. But uh, you might want to look ahead and uh, ask for God's help with that now. The return of Christ demands purity. So forsake behaviors of this present age. Yes, they're going on around us. And, and, and no, the world is not so inhibited as to participate in these things only in secret. Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality. The world has gotten so blatant and displaying these things, and even claiming there's nothing wrong going on here. God's people must forsake the behaviors 
of this present age. But forsaking alone is not enough. It's not enough just to leave a void behind. Verse 14 finishes this passage by saying, adopt behaviors of the future age, that daytime that is yet to come. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a master of succinctly expressing a lot of aspects of things in a very simple phrase in this passage. Uh, So many commands, you have a hard time keeping them straight. Just love your neighbor. You've got it. All the aspects of the person of Christ that we are to, uh, to, to develop and to display. Oh, let's just sum them all up. Put on Christ. Every day, make sure you are putting on what reflects the light of the Lord. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's already made a big point earlier in this book that those who have trusted Christ as Savior are in Christ, meaning that Christ is what people ought to see. Portray his character. But finally, he says, reject the plans of the flesh to please self. The flesh is still going to have those plans. The flesh is not going to give up this battle. You can make decisions uh, this morning in response to God's word, but don't think that that's going to end the challenge here. Your flesh is still making plans. But the call here is that don't you participate in that. You make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You have no such liberty in Christ. Chapter 14 is so often misinterpreted, as we'll observe when we get there in a few weeks. I have liberty to do what I want in the Lord. Oh, no, you don't. None of those things include things that don't reflect the light of Christ. A successful young professional was wrestling with the weight of his sinful lifestyle. He had grown up under the influence of a godly mother but had drifted into a level of self-indulgence in which he felt very comfortable in the world in which he was working. Memory of his mother's life, though, be, really began to bother him. And he was, he was unsettled. He became distressed by the grip that sin had on his life. There had been some habits that had formed in his life. One day, he says, his soul was especially troubled, and he knew exactly what he had to do to get victory, but he still hesitated. He expressed uh, his experience this way. He said, it's as if my sinful habits held me back 
pulling at my heart and murmuring softly, will you send us away? Do you think you can live without us? Almost like, ha, no chance of that. We sinful habits are too important to you. But it was at that moment that he suddenly felt an urge to open the Bible. As he did, he happened to fall on the very same passage that we have been uh, considering this morning. And his eyes riveted on verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Those verses smote his heart, and he turned to Christ in repentance, pleading for forgiveness, pleading for change. He later wrote, at that moment, all the darkness vanished because Christ will answer that prayer. He'll answer that prayer for you. Lord, there are some things that are clinging to my heart. Without your help, I can't send them away. Would you help me? There are some aspects of the character of Christ that I haven't started portraying yet. And it's no wonder the people nearby don't even know I'm a believer. Could be you have to admit to the Lord right now, I don't even know you as Savior. I've never asked Jesus to save my soul. I've never repented of sin. I need Christ as my Savior. He'll answer that prayer as well. So let's bow for prayer. I can't pray that prayer for you. So let's take these quiet moments now. I urge you... to ask the Lord for his help right now. Father, thank you for sending your son to pay for all these sins. Thank you for his grace that is able to help us change, who can actually bring victory. Father, we pray for the continuing work of your spirit this morning throughout this day, bringing lasting changes even into the coming week and beyond. We praise you for what you have done and what you are able to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.